0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. Before I introduce my guests, the Brookings Cafeteria team is excited to announce the premiere of a new segment we're calling Coffee Break. It'll be a chance to get to know the scholars of Brookings a little more personally. We'll hear how they came to Brookings, what attracted them to their studies, and find out what books they have on their reading list. Our first coffee break later in this episode is with a scholar who studies the ins and outs of Congress, so stay tuned for that. Today, my guests, are Khaled el and Natan Sachs, both fellows in the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings. Natan is an expert on Israeli foreign and domestic policy in the Arab-Israeli conflict and has taught on the issue at my alma mater, Georgetown University. Khaled has served as an advisor to the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah and has written extensively on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process and Egypt's role in the conflict. He is a founding board member of the Egyptian-American Rule of Law Association and also holds an advanced degree from Georgetown. Gentlemen, Hoya Sachs. And welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Fred.
0: Thanks, Fred. You are both directing a new conversation on the Marcaz blog here at Brookings called Debating Israeli-Palestinian Futures. Uh, it couldn't be more timely. It's on our website at brookings.edu slash Israeli-Palestinian futures. That's all one word. What do you hope comes out of the series, the Natan?
1: Well, right now, we have a general feeling of being stuck. Everyone doesn't know what to do. Um, The the sort of paradigm that has been going on for a long time, which is we need to strive for a two-state solution, uh, seems to be, to put it mildly, not going well. A lot of people are losing faith in it. So what we're hoping to do with this series is to generate a discussion about new ideas, about where things might go. It's not to say that necessarily goals have to change. I don't think fundamentally they should. But um, but we do need new new ideas about how we go forward from here. What happens with this impasse? Uh, what should the U.S. be doing? Uh, in particular, because the U.S. was heavily involved in an attempt to broker a final status agreement, uh, the Kerry Initiative, uh, that uh, ended uh, unsuccessfully. And right now there seems to be a vacuum in terms of policy. We s- we feel that is our role to try and fill that vo- vacuum. Try and bring up new ideas. Although a lot has been tried already.
0: Khalid, do you want to add to that?
1: Yeah,
2: I mean I. Of course, completely agree with uh, Natan. I mean, the th- the thrust of this really is to um, is to bring out new ideas, but also to keep the issue kind of to take it off the back burner and kind of bring it up front and center. Um, of course, uh, this issue has a way of imposing itself on the agenda anyway. But there are there's so much turmoil in the region and so many uh, issues uh, that need to be looked at that it's uh, it's natural for an issue like this to sort of get shunted aside. And so we're trying to keep the conversation going. We're trying to keep it um, lively and uh, in some cases maybe even a little provocative, hearing from people that uh, we might not be accustomed to hearing from.
1: I just wanted to add one thing, which is that we're already seeing right now the danger of doing nothing, uh, whether it's the U.S. or the parties, the danger of the status quo Well, the status quo, as Khaled and I both say often, is not static, and we're seeing the violence right now, these days. There's an enormous amount of fear right now going on. And so, not that we can solve this from here, uh, but we can contribute perhaps to this debate and try and bring voices that we don't usually hear, as Khaled said. Khaled,
0: you wrote in the first post in this series that the Middle East peace process, quote, has for all intents and purposes, collapsed. Um, and considering the, the, the violence that we're seeing even this week that Natan just referenced, can you explain what you meant by that?
2: Yeah, and, and like you said, we're seeing, um, unfortunately, a tragic proof of that fact. Um, what I meant is that the process, both the process of trying to resolve the conflict and uh, uh, finding ways to mitigate and prevent violence, both of those... Uh, are non-existent. And so there is no process. There is no negotiation process to try to end the conflict. And there is nothing. There are no mechanisms. There's no process or any way to try and prevent or uh, even uh, minimize the kind of violence that we're seeing right now. There's just nothing in place. And so we are at essentially the law of the jungle where the parties are left to their own devices. And this is a long-standing conflict. And of course, the parties will do what parties in conflict do and that is uh, intensify
0: their their conflict and yet it, it's almost paradoxical that you added that this condition does not preclude the possibility of a peaceful settlement of the conflict based on the two state solution how is that possible
2: well um, you know as as natan said really the the thrust of this effort is to try and bring in, to try to sort of infuse some new thinking uh, because the old ways haven't worked. So negotiations, this administration has now tried twice and both times haven't worked. The Obama administration. The Obama administration. Of course, previous administrations have tried also, and it's becoming less effective to simply bring the parties back to the negotiating table. And so one of our primary goals is to, to identify maybe uh, scenarios, tools, possibilities that haven't already been tried uh, because it's theoretically possible to reach a two-state solution. Um, but the current dynamic, uh, including American diplomatic dynamics, are not working. And so we, just, we need to try other things, and that's what the conversation's really about.
0: Natan, let me turn to your first post in the series. You highlighted four policy dilemmas they all seem to be about the, the balance between short-term and long-term goals, and one of these has to do very much with whether Israel should deal with Hamas. Can you speak to, first of all, Hamas's role and what that dilemma is?
1: Sure. Um, this is one of the most vexing and difficult problems. A lot of the misery in, in recent years has come from the stalemate between Israel and Hamas and between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, Hamas ruling Gaza, and fighting Israel from it, Israel blockading uh the strip the Gaza Strip, and the p a authority led by Fatah, which is Hamas's big rival uh in opposition most of the time to to Hamas, very strong opposition and this stalemate has has caused an enormous amount of misery. We saw a war just last summer, a very lengthy and bloody war, and we're seeing right now the danger that the violence in Jerusalem and inside israel will escalate not only to the West Bank, but to the Gaza Strip. We've already seen the beginnings of that, and that could be extremely dangerous. So what do you do with this? Well, to my mind, I think, and I disagree on this somewhat, to my mind, Hamas is is not a partner in the long term in any meaningful sense. The fact that it has rejected um, recognizing Israel, the fact that it has rejected uh, accepting pe- only peaceful means, the fact that it has rejected accepting uh, deure Uh, previous uh, international agreements by the Palestinians, is no coincidence. It's it's what Hamas is about. It's uh, how Hamas speaks. And even Hamas itself seems to be split on many of these things. Its track record is absolutely horrendous. So after having said that, what do you do with this terrible situation? One possibility would be to topple it, even physically. During the war last summer, things were so bad. The devastation in Gaza, too, was so bad that I don't think it was out of the question theoretically. But of course what comes in in Hamas's uh, wake, if Hamas were to be be toppled, could be much worse, and especially if it's chaos. And so that's not a very serious option. In other words, Hamas is an absolutely terrible uh, reality, but it is a reality I think we have to deal with, in particular because it has widespread support among Palestinians, not necessarily a majority, but certainly widespread support. Here comes the dilemma. In the long term, that's not where peace lies. Peace lies... If it can come with Fatah, with uh, the more moderate uh, forces in among Palestinians who are willing to make peace, not with Hamas. However, in the short term, the, the power of Hamas, the fact that it rules a whole region, makes it miserable. In that regard, I do think Israel needs to think very seriously about uh, dealing with Hamas on a practical level. This does not mean recognizing it, it certainly does not mean having illusions about it, but it does mean coming to a modus vivendi with it, something that already exists to a certain degree, but could be deepened. Uh, these negotiations are already happening. Hamas seems to be uh, reaching out to Israel and trying to find some kind of modus vivendi that would open up the Strip to a certain degree in return for some kind of assurances from Hamas that they would not uh, fight Israel more from the Gaza Strip. Uh, my my guess is that this will not happen, but even if it did, I would suggest it should happen as quietly as possible. We do not need to have any signing ceremonies or anything terribly official. We need to have some kind of modus vivendi that will limit the misery uh, even though in the long term, as I said, the peace does not lie with Hamas, to my mind.
0: Let me ask you, Khaled, about the Palestinian leadership. Given the, the split between Hamas and Fatah, uh, how can the uh, Palestinian leadership present a, uh, a, the legitimacy it needs to negotiate with Israel, to negotiate some kind of a, a deal, either, either for the short term or the long term?
2: Yeah, I think this is a very important question, and one that I that I think unfortunately uh, not enough U.S. policymakers are paying attention to. Uh, it matters what kind of a Palestinian leadership you have, obviously, um, but I would also say that it's it's not possible to make peace with one set of Palestinians, i.e., the Palestinian Authority and Mahmoud Abbas, while at the same time uh, engaging in a war with another set of Palestinians. Ie Hamas and Gaza, it's simply that is that is a hallmark of a dysfunctional peace process, and one of the reasons why it's never worked because that has been the policy uh, thus far. It has been uh, Israel's preference uh, as well. Um, it's no more possible than uh, you know uh, Mahmoud Abbas trying to make peace with the Labour Party. Uh, Uh, you know, over and uh, against uh, where the revisionist or the Likud party is, um, or those on the right. Um, You make peace with a people and you negotiate with the leaders that they select. Now, in this case, you have a dysfunctional Palestinian leadership. Um, It is fragmented, uh, it lacks legitimacy, and so, what I would suggest, or what I believe is important is is for the Palestinians to fix their own house first before they can engage in an existential process like negotiating the creation of their future state um, and that means that they have to become more representative, more representative of of the entire Palestinian community, not just in the West Bank and Gaza, but including the diaspora, because one of the issues on the agenda. Uh, as most people know, is the issue of refugees. Those voices have to be somehow represented, not necessarily at the negotiating table, but to feel that they have a voice within Palestinian politics to influence the outcome. And so when I say, uh, for example, Hamas has to be part of the solution, otherwise it's part of the problem. That doesn't mean that Israel or the United States have to sit across the table from Hamas. Um, neither of them are so inclined, but only that Palestinians internally be allowed to have that conversation uh, for there to be uh, a legitimate leadership with a legitimate opposition, uh, and Hamas or others can play that play that role. And so simply. Carving Hamas out of the process and saying you can't be involved in any way, I think is is uh, is simply not uh, not tenable. Um, so uh, so it's really it's really about fixing the Palestinian house and and ensuring that all the existing political forces, uh, whether they're opposition or they're uh, in governing in government, have uh, have a role to play. Uh, because as long as they don't have a stake uh, in the success of the process, then they will have a stake in uh, in making it fail.
0: And now let's pause for our coffee break with scholar Molly Reynolds.
3: My name is Molly Reynolds, and I am a fellow in Governance Studies here at Brookings. I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania which is an old steel town uh, about an hour north of Philadelphia. They stopped making steel there when I was in elementary school, uh, and it's been really interesting to watch the city deal with um, all kinds of challenges that are affecting lots of Rust Belt cities and towns across the country. Uh, My path to becoming a scholar at Brookings actually begins here at Brookings. Uh, When I was graduating from college, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do do as a career. And I was lucky enough to be hired by Tom Mann to be his research assistant. And I learned a lot of things working for Tom, a lot of things about Congress, a lot of things about campaign finance. But I also learned a couple important things about what I wanted out of a career. And one of those was I really wanted to be able to research and spend time thinking about things that I thought were interesting, even if it was something as narrow as congressional procedure. After a couple years working here at Brookings, I went off to the University of Michigan, where I got a PhD in political science and public policy. I specialized in the study of Congress, and I became a big Michigan football fan. And then when I was getting ready to finish and looking for a job, I realized that what I valued in a job was the ability to make uh, real contributions to current debates in the American political system. And there's no better place to do that kind of work than Brookings. I think the most important issue we are facing today is how the increasing polarization of the parties has made it more difficult for groups both within Congress and between Congress and the president to uh, negotiate. We've seen a lot of this recently with things like this fight over the House speakership and the House Freedom Caucus. And as various actors, both the parties in Congress and the president, think that they might be rewarded for taking more extreme stances. It's what puts us in this position of lurching from shutdown crisis to shutdown crisis, and it makes it more difficult to really address the problems of the nation. One of the top misconceptions that I think folks have about my field is the idea that gridlock in Washington is really a failure Of political will, largely on the part of the president. Uh, There's a political scientist at Dartmouth named Brendan Nyhan who's called this the Green Lantern Theory of the Presidency. And that comes from um, this comic book superhero whose powers are summoned by willpower alone. And the idea here is that uh, people tend to think that if only the president tried harder or tried the right things, he would be able to force Congress to compromise with him. And I think this is a perception that really undermines the power of the legislative branch. And it also makes it easy to sort of forget the lot of what affects what Congress and the president can get done are institutional constraints like the filibuster and the veto. The biggest project that I'm working on right now is I'm writing a book about exceptions to the filibuster rule in the Senate. So we know that the filibuster uh, shapes a lot of what the Senate can get done, but there have also been, over the course of the 20th century, a number of times where Congress has carved out specific exceptions to that rule. And I'm writing a book on when Congress does this and what the consequences of um, these are. One really notable example that's been back in the headlines recently uh, is the budget reconciliation process, which we've heard about um, as part of the debate over federal funding for Planned Parenthood. Um, and I'm also contributing regularly to uh The GS FixGov blog and recent developments on the Hill, like the speakership fight and the possibility of a shutdown, have given me lots of good material on that front. Uh, If I could recommend one book for folks to read, it would be a book uh, by Robert Draper called When the Tea Party Came to Town, which is a uh, really vivid and well-reported book about the first Congress after the Tea Party emerged uh, on the national scene in 2010. Um, It's a book that gives folks um, a real sense of the characters that occupy Capitol Hill um, and also provides really important context for the kinds of fights that we're seeing continue to play out, including a a really great explanation of what happened during the debate over raising the debt ceiling in 2011, which is a debate that'll be um, back on Congress's agenda this fall.
0: And now back to the conversation with Khaled and Natan. Khaled, you cited in one of your posts for the series three major trends that shape the realities on the ground. You just talked about one of those, the Palestinian leadership crisis. Can you address what the other two are?
2: Yeah, uh, the other two uh, trends on the ground are uh, deepening Israeli occupation, uh, which really, you know, what Palestinians and others refer to as facts on the ground, and that is more settlement expansion, um, you know, more home, both in uh, in East Jerusalem and the other parts of uh, of the West Bank uh, that are very sensitive um, and, and sort of deepening the Israeli presence. And so you would expect, if you are moving toward a two-state solution, and, and the two sides agree on that in theory, that there would be movement towards disengaging from that reality rather than deepening it. But it is, in fact, uh, deepening. There are more settlers, more construction. Uh, and that, that is a, an extremely, uh, I mean, that's a, a source uh, of, uh, of, of anger for Palestinians uh, who see more and more of their land being swallowed up, less and less likelihood of ever building a capital uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, and, uh, uh, and their hopes for, for an independent state uh, sort of vanishing before their eyes. Um the other trend is is one that I think stems from the huge imbalance in power between the between the two sides and this is another thing that I think gets overlooked by American diplomats who very often think well if we can just get the two sides to the negotiating table ignoring the fact that one is the occupying power and the other is the occupied population and that there is in fact a huge military economic and political uh, imbalance between them and so that trend is to is for the mainly a palestinian one to rely on the international community international forums like the united nations and other mechanisms to try to offset that imbalance somehow to level the playing field and that is a trend that is growing uh, irrespective uh, uh, frankly, of the wishes of the Palestinian government uh, or the Palestinian Authority, um, and we see it reflected in things like the BDS movement uh, and and sort of popular pressure uh, on uh, on the Palestinian leadership to join the International Criminal Court and to pursue uh, war crimes charges and and so on. And so we're going to see more of that. The more the, the less hope Palestinians have uh, in, a, in a viable, uh, credible, peace process, the more they will rely on these uh, other mechanisms to try to address their grievances.
0: Natan, I want to uh, ask you about something that another contributor in the series, Sarah Yerkes, wrote in her piece, uh, where where she she wrote that the greatest obstacle to a peaceful settlement of the conflict is, quote, the deep divide between the societies. Uh, What is she talking about with this deep divide, and, and what are some of the ways that that divide can be bridged?
1: Well, Sarah Yerkes, who was at the State Department and has now joined us as a visiting fellow, uh, wrote about a, a trend, a long-term trend now, where both societies don't really know each other. About 20 years ago, and especially before Oslo, actually, and was even more so before the first Intifada, which broke, up, broke out in the end of 87, Israelis and Palestinians dealt with each other daily. Uh, Palestinians worked in Israel, Israelis sometimes worked in the West Bank, and but especially shopped in the West Bank. There was interaction all the time. Now that's not the case. Uh, What we've seen is a growing separation between the populations. This is not just a matter of policy, it's partly a matter of policy. Uh, To my mind, it's also very much a product of the continuation of the conflict. So right now, as we said in the beginning, we're seeing daily attacks. Today, there were several attacks in Jerusalem just today. Um, In this kind of environment, naturally, if you think of any society, especially over many years, two societies become very estranged, very fearful, Uh, often with a lot of hatred towards one another. Sarah Yerkes writes that uh, we should be putting a lot of effort in, the United States and others, should be putting a lot of effort both into dealing with this societal hatred from each side, but also in buttressing up civil society. I, of course, think she's right uh, that civil society needs to be helped. I am maybe more skeptical about the possibility of civil society carrying the weight To my mind, it's first and foremost a matter of policy, and especially a matter of violence. Unfortunately, when we see this, some are already calling this a third intifada, but even if it's short-lived, we see an enormous amount of estrangement going on, and no amount of goodwill produced through talks uh, can best that. To be clear, I think civil society should be helped, and in particular, because we're not looking at peace anytime soon civil society and especially the more creative efforts in civil society of bridging the gaps become more important, not less. The fact that we're all sick of hearing of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is actually evidence that we should be helping those who are trying to stem the the tide. If peace were around the corner, we wouldn't need much efforts because then things would be good pretty soon. So right now, I actually think she's absolutely right. Civil society needs to be helped. Uh, I disagree with her somewhat about maybe the sources of 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 some of the estrangement between the societies.
0: Let me ask you, Khaled, about what I see as uh, one of these many paradoxes or contradictions in, in this issue. You write in one of the pieces that should Israel conduct a unilateral withdrawal of, of settlers from the occupied territories, which people say well, Israel should just go ahead and do that. You say it would benefit neither the Israeli government nor the Palestinians, and yet the continued occupation of that territory is one of the factors behind violence directed at, at Israel and Israelis. It's sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Can you speak to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, just to sort of unpack that paradox a little bit, the idea of a unilateral withdrawal, uh, unilateral Israeli withdrawal, is designed, uh, just like the Gaza withdrawal was 10 years ago, is designed to meet exclusively Israeli needs and interests. That is why it's a unilateral withdrawal. And so it would only it you would only get those aspects of a withdrawal that benefit uh Israel without much benefit for the Palestinians, except that there would be presumably a larger swath of land to cultivate or to build on um but without any of the trappings of of course of sovereignty or uh independence or genuine freedom and so what happened in Gaza was um i think. Uh, instructive about how we ought to view such proposals in the future, Uh, because essentially what Israel did is it relinquished responsibility by removing its its army and its settlers, and so it decided it was no longer going to be responsible, but didn't give up actual control. Um, And that is essentially the sort of thing that we see being proposed in the West Bank, that Israel will give up uh, certain parts of the West Bank, but not give up the areas surrounding it it will continue to control uh movement between palestinian areas uh as well as international borders uh such as with jordan uh, and so you get you end up israel gets sort of the 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 best aspects of a withdrawal we're not responsible for those people um but without actually relinquishing control uh, and, and the other side of it is that those areas that would be withdrawn from are sort of the least strategic, the least contentious. Um, and so there's a dynamic that would be created in which Israel is sort of reinforcing because it would take so much political capital uh, to carry out a withdrawal like this um, uh, that it would be very hard to, to sort of uh, continue down the road, either to complete the withdrawal to an international agreed-upon border uh, or to carry out further withdrawals. And so what, you, what would end up happening is it would sort of consolidate Israel's control over those areas that are the most contentious that we know Israel would not withdraw from, namely in and around Jerusalem. And so We would get sort of, you know, Israel would dismantle the failed settlements, the ones that are completely untenable, um, and pay a political cost for it, and at the same time, maintaining control over Jerusalem, key water resources, an international border, and so on. And so it's not a very attractive uh, option for Palestinians, but then again, that is the purpose. It's not designed to be... Uh, attractive to Palestinians because it is unilateral by definition. It is only supposed to uh, satisfy Israeli interests.
1: I have a very different view on this, um, especially on Gaza. If you look what happened there, it was certainly designed unilaterally and it was designed for Israel's interests. But it so happens that it also served Palestinian Palestinian interests tremendously or could have had the Palestinians... Uh, taken hold of that opportunity. It's true that it is very far from perfect from the Palestinian perspective. It's also very far from perfect from the Israeli perspective. But the Palestinians got hold of the whole Gaza Strip. It was not just the military that was pulled out. It was the settlers as well. Uh, A long-standing demand by the Palestinians. Israel withdrew completely from the Gaza Strip. And pulling out the military, it's true, uh, eases some of the pressure on Israel, but there was a Palestinian authority there under the OZO process that should have and could have taken control. What doomed the disengagement in Gaza was the rise of Hamas and the continuation of the war from it. And as a result, on the Israeli side, there is a very strong animosity right now towards unilateral steps. I write about this as a dilemma, and I think Israel should consider it, but I should be clear that among Israelis... Uh, there is very strong feeling that this has failed dramatically. I just add a couple more things on this. Unilateral steps can take many different forms. They don't need to look necessarily like the Gaza Strip. In particular, the chance that Israel would simply withdraw its military completely from large swaths of the West Bank, given the way the West Bank looks right now and the way the region looks right now, and the no trust that exists between the two sides is non-existent. What we could hope for perhaps, I think, is a slow unraveling of some of the Israeli presence in some of these areas. In fact, addressing exactly what Khalid was talking about earlier, which is the deepening Israeli presence in the West Bank. This trend can be reversed without military withdrawal necessarily, but with withdrawal of some of the settlers. I think it would be certainly a plus for Palestinians, since they're the ones who would get more control of their territory. It would be very far from perfect, Perfect, in fact, is unattainable in any respect, but it is also very far of what we can get from peace. Nonetheless, it would be a good. The damned if you do, damned if you don't thing is fundamental, and I think we cannot simply tell the Israelis, uh, you cannot control the West Bank, you have to get out of Gaza, but don't you dare get out of Gaza. It is simply untenable.
0: I'm going to uh, draw your attention and listeners' attention to uh, a very recent uh, contribution to the series by Gilead Sure, You spoke earlier of hoping to have some provocative Pieces. I read this. It's this uh, interesting proposals in his contribution. Can you both speak very briefly to uh, what he had to say?
1: I think Elad Sher, uh, who was a former peace negotiator and uh, an aide to Prime Minister Eud Barak, um, he has very much this approach of uh, Israeli steps unilaterally you know, if necessary. He proposes. Um, negotiations, uh, in fact, including not just the Palestinians but other Arab states, uh, trying to widen the circle, trying to bring the parties back to the table, but at the same time not taking an all-or-nothing approach, which means that if you cannot achieve a full final status agreement, which unfortunately I'm skeptical as many as others are, then Israel should take the initiative, as he says and do some of these unilateral steps. He's been involved, and others in Israel have been involved, for example, in proposals that uh, Palestinian, that settlers in uh, the West Bank not necessarily be removed forcefully, as they were in the Gaza Strip, but be gradually incentivized to come back to Israel, at least from remote settlements. These kinds of proposals, even while keeping the security um, presence there, uh, could start changing the vector of events and moving towards a lessening of the deepening, the deepening presence, Israeli presence in the West Bank that Khaled mentioned.
2: Um, yeah, it's true. I mean, Gilad Shir sort of represents this, uh, this idea that uh, we've been talking about, about a unilateral withdrawal. And, you know, there are, in my view, a great many problems with it. And I think, again, the Gaza experience was instructive. And just to sort of take issue uh, with my friend and colleague Natan, um, the Gaza disengagement didn't work, not because of the rise of Hamas, but actually it it failed because when Israel left, it sort of locked the doors uh, and closed up Gaza's borders, which led to the rise of Hamas. The fact that Gaza was sealed up despite warnings from Palestinians Um, that Gaza cannot become an open-air prison, and that this would play into the hands of of Hamas. Um, It did. Uh, And uh, the borders were closed long before Hamas was elected uh, in 2007. And so there were already problems there. But there was another aspect to it that I think uh, a lot of people overlook, and that is the unilateral nature of that whole process. You know, for, for years... The Israeli side said, there's no partner. Arafat is not a partner. He's a terrorist. And, and the United States insisted on, the, on a new Palestinian leadership. And in that same year, in 2005, a new Palestinian leadership did emerge in the, in the form of Mahmoud Abbas. And he was someone that the United States and Israelis and others felt they could work with. Uh, and yet the process was still conducted unilaterally. And so his very first test, he was marginalized. Uh, and, uh, uh, and essentially undermined as a leader. He was still not relevant despite um, uh, sort of his very different approach to this process. So when you, do, when you act unilaterally, you are undermining whatever leadership is in place because essentially that side is saying, you're, you're not relevant to this process. I don't need you to, to do what I need to do. Um, and, and I'm certain that another unilateral withdrawal would sort of further erode uh, the current leadership's already very shaky uh, standing among its own people. So there is that aspect of it that I think uh, I think too many people uh, overlook.
1: I, I agree that the unilateral nature uh, was certainly unfortunate then. And to be clear, I much prefer anything that is negotiated. That's always much better. In 2005 in particular, Mahmoud Abbas should have been Uh, given credit for a lot of this. But if we cannot reach peace and if we cannot have successful negotiations, and unfortunately that's where we are right now, not just because of the Palestinian leadership, for other reasons as well, um, then I don't think the fallback should be the status quo, which is not static, as I said. Uh, Rather, it can be um, initiatives, things that move us at least in the right direction. And in that regard, uh, the withdrawal, which, by the way, was not just from Gaza, it was also from a small part of the Northern West Bank and could have been much more, uh, could have been a very good start. Um, it is true that the borders were closed before Hamas came to power, but it was after Hamas waged war from the Gaza Strip that it was evacuated, in particular a kidnapping of a soldier. Um, and And this reality where war continues from a territory that is evacuated is perhaps the biggest obstacle, except for the second intifada in the past 20 years that has made Israelis skeptical of peace. So it's very unfortunate. It doesn't matter. The score doesn't matter so much. It is very unfortunate that this is where we are. I think we have to keep an open mind, though, for things that are very short of perfect, that are very short of full peace. We have to keep them as policy options. Otherwise, we are stuck with nothing.
2: All right, but it's precisely that, that I think you know, we have to keep in mind the, the uh, unintended consequences uh, of, of these actions that seem plausible, uh, benign, or even constructive uh, on the surface, but in fact are loaded with all kinds of problems, as we saw very, very clearly uh, in Gaza. The fact that, that no one was able to anticipate or predict or even theorize the possibility that Hamas might somehow take advantage of the situation um, uh, from an Israeli withdrawal, that they would be able to capitalize on it, uh, I think is uh, is part of the problem. You know, that should have been foreseen. And it also sort of highlights the problematic nature of dealing with two different sets of Palestinians um, where, you know, you— we're dealing with Mahmoud Abbas, and he's our partner, but he's not very strong in Gaza, especially in 2005. But at that point, Hamas uh, had already built up enormous capital, even during the days of, of Yasser Arafat, and had a, an enormous uh, base of support there. And to, so to simply hand over the keys to Mahmoud Abbas, I think it was naive to expect him to be able to have the situation under control. Um, but also this, this you know, it's it's very problematic when you have multiple Palestinian actors, um, where one is staked in a peace process and the other is has a stake in defeating it. So, uh, you know, at least if Hamas is brought into the fold in terms of being part of a cohesive, unitary Palestinian polity of some sort then it has a stake not necessarily in the peace process but it has a stake in maintaining its position within that Palestinian polity under the rules of that of that political game that is being played um, and it can play the role of the opposition or it can play the role eventually even if it if it wins an election uh, to have the ability to govern but simply excising it uh, artificially I think, only creates an incentive for it to want to torpedo the process, and it can do that at very little cost uh, because it didn't negotiate the uh, the Gaza disengagement, and yet it could completely dismantle it um, because it was in a position to do so on the ground. And so whether or not we want to deal with Hamas, we end up dealing with them, and in fact Israel deals with them all the time, either in, in the battlefield, so to speak, Or uh, even in terms of negotiations, they negotiate with Hamas through third parties, and everybody knows that. You're dealing with them in one way or another. And so what I think is best is really to just eliminate that pretense uh, and bring them, allow them to participate within the fold of Palestinian politics. And then they're much more uh, able to be managed and controlled uh, in that space rather than as free agents.
0: Why don't we finish with the uh, words of Michael Barnett, who wrote in his contribution to the Debating Israeli-Palestinian Future series, what I thought was a very moving um, set of words. He wrote of a, quote, sense of exhaustion and hopelessness that so many feel, uh, unquote, with regard to this conflict. Is, Is there any good alternative to what's going on there now?
1: I think there's a there certainly are alternatives to what's happening now which is really very dismal. Uh just in the last year and a half we've seen the war in Gaza and the devastation of that and we've seen seen this week uh the terrible uh terror, terror campaign that's going on and is in fact uh, inflicting terror, fear. Um there are alternatives to that. The real question is in the long term and this is kind of a question we're trying to ask. In the long term do we have alternatives to a two-state solution to something like that? And I I don't think there is. I think there there is an alternative, in fact, that is likely, but it's not an alternative we should hope for. The alternative is more of the same. It is conflict management. <coughs> I write in a piece that's coming out in a few weeks um, of an anti-solutionist approach among Israeli leaders, and in fact among many. This feeling that uh, the the sentiment that there should be a solution, a neat solution to every puzzle in the world. Uh, that that is naive, that that is a hopeless, perhaps even an American can-do American spirit that is great in the Midwest, but not so good in the Middle East. And in the Middle East, some people fear, some people feel, uh, with a lot of cynicism, uh, things usually go wrong. And therefore, the best one can do is to manage bad situations, to manage problems, not to be over-ambitious with what one does because of unintended consequences, which Khaled mentioned. And there's, of course, wisdom in this perspective. In some cases, what you can do is know, know what you can solve and what you cannot solve, and have the wisdom to distinguish between the two, as they say, and then to manage the conflict well. But in this case, what we're seeing just this week is the failure of the conflict management approach. Uh, If we are doomed to manage it for the meantime, we have to think much more carefully about how we manage it and how we push it in the right direction, not the wrong direction. In the long term, there's a whole set of ideas that are being brought up about what would replace the two-state solution. I find them thoroughly unconvincing. Some of them, the more creative ones, are in effect elaborations of the two-state solution, confederation or something else. And on that, certainly we should think creatively, and it's worthwhile Um, but fundamentally the idea that there should be two states or a political division, uh, that I simply have not seen a credible alternative to it. Khaled, what
0: can we do to counter this sense of exhaustion and hopelessness that so many feel?
1: Well,
2: I mean, let me start with just to to tackle this question of are there alternatives. There are there absolutely are alternatives, and in fact, we are living in one. We this current reality is an alternative to a two-state solution of two states living side by side in peace, where you know two nation states exercise self determination. Um, so the current reality is is that of essentially one state. Um, it, it it has some trappings. It's it sort of was supposed to lead to two states, but it never it never really got there, and so you have essentially a disenfranchised population, the Palestinians, who are ruled by a a government in which they have no say, in which they're not able to uh, uh, even, uh, they're not even afforded the pretense of of an election. So one way or another, Palestinians really will have to be given uh, the right to vote and self-determination. Either that will happen in their own state, or they will insist on, eventually, there will be a critical mass who will insist on the right to vote in an Israeli state. And I think that Israel has sort of come to the conclusion, sort of embrace the two-state solution on that basis. Um, but it can't be simply managed in the sense of you cannot tell a uh, a subject population that they are going to be subordinated indefinitely forever, and that's simply... A, a a you know uh, part of managing the conflict. It's not just about a conflict. It is about an occupation. An occupation is about power, and it's about one group dominating and uh, suppressing the rights of another group. And for a very long time, Palestinians, uh, the consensus among Palestinians was on one st- one state that there would be one democratic secular state between the river and the sea. At a certain point in their history, they abandoned that view as unrealistic and adopted a two-state solution. Unfortunately, at that time, uh, no one else bought into that idea. And it wasn't really until the late 1990s uh, that Americans and Israelis accepted the idea of of a two-state solution. Now, in fact, it may actually be too late. Because of realities on the ground and because of these deep-seated uh, animosities um but it is you know at this point i don't believe that a uh, a one state solution uh in which uh both uh arabs and jews live in equality in a single unitary nation state whatever it may be called i don't see that as politically viable it's not yet kind of uh hasn't yet come online i think uh, in terms of the critical mass on on both sides. But that's not to say that that's a permanent situation. I think as long as, you know, the status quo is, we agree, Natan and I agree, the status quo is not static, but that, is all, that also relates to mindsets. Mindsets change um, in the same way that Israel and the United States said, we can never accept partition or a Palestinian state. It would be highly destabilizing in the region. That was U.S. policy in the 1980s, uh, and 15 years later, that policy was completely reversed. And today, a two-state solution, the creation of a Palestinian state, is a cornerstone of U.S. policy in the Middle East. So things can change, and things can change quite dramatically. And I can't eliminate—I uh, can't rule out the possibility that at some point down the road, uh, psychologies could change to the point where a there is no other way to resolve this conflict except through uh, enfranchising the Palestinians in an Israeli state um, but it's either that or we get to we divide uh, you know we divide the land into two states now I don't think Palestinians I think it's easy it's relatively easy for the empowered and entitled group to sort of say well, we can put off uh, a a a resolution of this indefinitely until more you know the until the political conditions are better but for the for the population that is deprived of their rights um it's it's not something that they are are willing to do and we're seeing the the fruits of that today you know there there will be you know, sort of putting this off indefinitely means a recurring Uh, You know, sort of the situation that we're seeing today will happen again and again and again uh, without any end. There isn't a way to manage it forever.
1: I'll just add one more thing. I agree, psychology can change, and I hope it will. But the fact that there's so much animosity between the sides is not the only problem that prevents a successful one state. Um, When you look at a constitutional arrangement, you have to think not just of the psychology, you have to think of the power structure. And when we look at other cases of trying to create multinational one-states, the record is dismal. Uh, As bad as the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has been, it has been far, far better than Bosnia. And to create a Bosnia voluntarily and hope for the best, even if psychology changed... Um, to my mind, would be reckless, because as we've seen, psychology can change back very rapidly. So the question when you're creating constitutional arrangement is not whether people want it right now or whether people have goodwill. It's whether the power structure is one that can sustain it in equilibrium, self-sustaining over time. And I don't know what will happen in 100 years. I hope things are very different. I agree with Khalid completely that people cannot remain disenfranchised forever. But the notions that if people just had goodwill, a one state could be a solution to my mind is uh, ignoring the real problem. The fact that we have something that sometimes resembles a one-state reality right now is exactly the problem. That is what we need to solve, not enhance to my mind.
0: Well, Natan Khaled, I want to thank you both for joining me uh, today and also for your work on solutions to this very serious problem.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: You can learn more about the series and follow the debate on our website at brookings.edu slash Israeli Palestinian Futures. That's all one word. My thanks to our audio engineer, Zach Kolzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Carissa Nitchi, Rebecca Weiser, Eric Abalahin, and intern extraordinaire, Karen Weil-Gergis. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.